gang, this week's episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. Hey, LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates that you want to talk to faster. Did you know that every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free now at linkedin.com slash good seats. That's linkedin.com slash good seats to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now, here's our show. In the forefront of the world soccer scene, the National Professional Soccer League is in its 10th sensational season, attracting tens of thousands of sports fans every year, and it continues to be the fastest-growing all-pro sports league in the nation. But it's not just sports fanatics that are getting hooked on the thrill of the game. More and more young people are turning to the NPSL for fun and for inspiration. In addition, many American schools have begun to switch their focus from other sports to soccer, and the NPSL has given its full support to help the young players of today become the superstars of tomorrow. The NPSL is responsible for innovative rule changes that translate into faster action, hotter plays, and more excitement than ever. The game is played on a 200-foot-long field in four 15-minute quarters. Plus, the NPSL's 1-2 and 3-point scoring system gives indoor soccer the speed of hockey, the power of football, and the non-stop action of basketball. Unlike ordinary soccer, the ball can bounce off the dasher boards and come back into play, which leaves less time for lollygagging, dilly-dallying, and just hanging around. Each team is allowed six players on the field at a time, smaller than the ordinary soccer team, so the action is twice as fast. There are more one-on-one challenges than in ordinary soccer. These critical plays are known as shootouts for obvious reasons. They can be moments of glory or they can be times of defeat, but they're always intense. When such top players as Hector Marinaro and Jamie Swanner go head to head, the field can become a battleground and the players can turn into gladiators. With competition like this, you know there ain't no fooling around. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. My name, as announced, is Tim Hanlon. How you doing? And uh, the podcast, as announced, is Good Seats Still Available. Yes, it is. And uh, we welcome you to this week's proceedings. Thanks for finding us. We appreciate it. And uh, fun times uh, to be had by all this week. As we go back to the fun and ever-evolving sport of indoor soccer with our guest this week, Keith Tozer, who is arguably the uh, chief guy uh, that one uh, can uh, go to to talk about uh, the current day version of the game, the origination of the game. Somebody was there uh, in the earliest days of the major indoor soccer league coming out of college. And uh, has been, I, I guess, frankly, one of the uh, uh, the deepest and uh, most knowledgeable lifers, if you will, of this indoor game, a relatively new concoction. Uh, and we've talked about the origins of it with people like Steve Holroyd and, and Ed Tepper and, uh, and a few others. The first league, however, uh, in earnest, uh, aside from uh, professional tournaments that the North American Soccer League uh, did, in the, the early part of the 1970s, uh, the real first league uh, of any uh, substance uh, was that of the major indoor soccer league uh, started in 1978. Uh, and uh, who was there playing in uh, the very first uh, games of such for a one year wonder known as the Cincinnati kids. Yes. Keith Tozer was part of that team coming out of uh, 
having just graduated from Oneonta State uh, in uh, in New York, um, a uh, draft pick we find out in our conversation coming up of the Washington Diplomats of the North American Soccer League Outdoor. However, timely for Keith coming out of college when he was, uh, got a bid, got drafted by this team called the Cincinnati Kids in the MISL. What's that? He said at the time. And we get into why and what he felt that was going to be and perhaps why it was a, a good move for him. And it wound up becoming a, an illustrious career of indoor play uh, with not only the kids, but the Hartford Hellions. Remember them? The Pittsburgh Spirit in the early 1980s. Remember them? How about the Louisville Thunder of the AISA, American Indoor Soccer Association, and then later the National Professional Soccer League, the second version or incarnation of such. The Atlanta Attack, which then moved to Kansas City, where he not only played, but was also coach. Same for Louisville, by the way. He was a player coach. The Los Angeles Lasers, something we've talked about with uh, our pals Ronnie Weinstein and Johnny Buss and, and others. The Los Angeles Lasers, yes, the uh, Jerry Buss uh, and family owned and uh, forum uh, domiciled team in the MISL. Keith was the coach of that team for, uh, I think, the last two years of its life. Uh, and, and a whole bunch of other stuff, futsal and, and et cetera. But I think most of you uh, general sports fans out there who have some understanding or, or uh, awareness of indoor soccer in, in more modern times, shall we say, will know Keith uh, in two fashions. Uh, number one, as the longtime coach, circa 1992 and onward until about 2014, of the still existing Milwaukee Wave a franchise um, that uh, is uh, emblematic of the crazy patchwork quilt of indoor soccer leagues and teams, uh, began its life in 1984 in the AISA and meandered its way through its conversion to the second incarnation of the NPSL, uh, then the second incarnation of the MISL when the NPSL uh, sort of converted and or transformed into that in 2001. Uh, a a brief one-year stop in this thing called the XSL, the Extreme Soccer League, only four teams. New Jersey Ironmen, I know, was, was another one of those. Uh, we'll get into that in some other episode. The third incarnation of the MISL, circa 19, excuse me, 2009. And now the, uh, the team that still exists, the Milwaukee Wave does, in something that is uh, Keith's second uh, journey. Uh, into uh, uh, the uh, uh, indoor soccer extravaganza called the Major Arena Soccer League that Keith is now the commissioner of. And thanks to our pal J.P. Della Camera, uh, who is the uh, chief uh, uh, cook and bottle washer from all, all things PR and communications and, and television and media and stuff for the Major Arena Soccer League, we get introduced for the first time to our pal now, our new pal, Keith Tozer, the commissioner of the Major Arena Soccer League, and and we've we've uh, glanced around this uh, idea and this topic for a couple of different episodes, but uh, is uh, striving the MASL is um, to perhaps uh, get to that sort of high level that the original MISL enjoyed back in its early days when it was bursting onto the scene as this brand new phenomenon in pro sports, 
And uh, Lord knows there's a lot of talent out there. Uh, and there's a uh, a room certainly for the indoor game with the dashboards and the uh, plexiglass and the hockey-like two-minute uh, penalties and all that stuff. Uh, it's an exciting game. Uh, I think the uh, burgeoning uh, uh, outdoor game uh, has really sort of taken root here in the United States after many, many, many years. But is there a role for the indoor game in the winters? Um, I think Keith would argue vociferously, yes, uh, as he would for, say, the game of futsal, which does not have the uh, the boards and the uh, the plexiglass. And yes, we do get into whatever happened to or what has happened to or, or what is the status of, I guess I should say, of the uh, professional futsal league. Uh, it's still kind of alive. That's the Mark Cuban invested thing back in 2016. Keith was uh, named and part of that for 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 some time. Keith has been involved in in futsal on the uh, national team level for some time. We get into that for sure. Uh, we also even uh, take a quick uh, a quick uh, detour uh, into uh, Keith's very brief outdoor career. Uh, it was only one season, 1979, the American Soccer League. Pennsylvania Stoners, one of the better named teams in all of pro sports, the Pennsylvania Stoners. So we talk about all of that stuff uh, and more uh, with our guest this week, Keith Tozer, the commissioner of the major arena soccer league. And let's call him in all the loving way we can a lifer, an indoor soccer lifer for sure. Great conversation coming up for you in mere moments Time. How about two quick sponsors for you to celebrate the uh, wonderful and intriguing and uh, ever-changing sport of uh, professional indoor soccer? Well, we got two two places for you to celebrate that uh, with us and perhaps uh, enjoy some T-shirts and uh, some other uh, garb uh, from uh, two of our great sponsors. One, of course, is OldSchoolShirts.com. P.F. Wilson, how you doing? P.F., nice to talk to you again via the interwebs. Um, and, uh, if you go to lots of great stuff at old school shirts, you know, this, uh, uh, if you've been a long time listener, if you haven't, uh, get yourself over to oldschoolshirts.com. all kinds of great shirts. And like the name implies, it's not just actually sports, uh, and there's great forgotten leagues and teams, including indoor soccer, like the major indoor soccer league, the, probably the best assemblage and well, uh, crafted versions of wonderful shirts commemorating, just about every team that ever graced the green carpet of the original major indoor soccer league, including uh, some of the places that Keith played, such as uh, the Cincinnati Kids, a great shirt there uh, with the uh, the original logo and uh, the uh, sort of uh, half volley kicking uh, player. Uh, uh, probably I have not seen a more gorgeous shirt uh, celebrating the Cincinnati Kids than at OldSchoolShirts.com. Uh, there's an L.A. Lasers shirt in there, of course, uh, he being the coach of that team for a couple of years. Uh, that is there for you as well. There's a Pittsburgh Spirit shirt. You can celebrate Keith's couple of years there, too. Uh, and other great uh, uh, teams of that uh, great league. The Hartford Hellions, a great red shirt with the Hartford Hellions logo. God, people forget that, that the Hellions even existed. But, yeah, they sure did. OldSchoolShirt.com, promo code for you there. Good seats. For 10% off all of your purchases, not only for MISL shirts, but all kinds of other leagues and uh, great pop culture stuff there for you. Check them out. OldSchoolShirts.com. Promo code GOODSEATS. And also check out ExtraTimeVintage.com. Again, our pal Kevin Schultz in Florence, Kentucky, 
extra time vintage, all one word, dot com. Promo code for you there is good seats for 10% off all of your purchases. And there you're going to find some really esoteric things such as, wait for it, shirts and a mug even, uh, or a hoodie or whatever other design you want of the Pennsylvania Stoners. Yeah, that great Pennsylvania Stoners logo. You can really show your uh, soccer knowledge uh, by getting a, a, an offering there from extratimevintage.com. How about the Hershey Impact? You remember them? Well, sure. They played in the uh, NPSL and the old AISA. The Canton Invaders did too. And a whole bunch of other shirts uh, from various teams in uh, all kinds of soccer leagues. And some of them really uh, esoteric and hard to find. Extratimevintage.com. Again, promo code Good Seats for 10% off all of your purchases there. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, and thank you, uh, great listeners, for not only checking them out, uh, but uh, supporting the show with every purchase at both of those places. Um, there you go. All right. So let's move right along, shall we? Let's get into indoor soccer. Let's uh, immerse ourselves into the the past and the present and the uh, very, we think, bright future in the major arena soccer league that is, exists today. Now, let's talk to the commissioner, Keith Tozer, and how uh, he got there uh, and the uh, long and winding road, shall we say, of uh, indoor soccer. Here's our conversation we had just last week. Thank you for listening. Please, as always, enjoy. I don't know if I could personify indoor soccer on the pro level. I guess I'm talking to the guy who kind of has been there at the creation and then some. Um, so I, I guess maybe it's helpful for our audience, especially that those who are not sort of uh, familiar maybe with the world of, of professional indoor soccer, or Lord knows we've had plenty of great conversations that should hopefully have schooled them thus far. Um, but maybe describe what your current role is with the MASL. And maybe we can work our way back from there because I think it's a good table set to know what this uh, major arena soccer league is. And it certainly gives us an open window into truly what used to be and maybe what might be at a, at a, at a truly high level once again. Yeah. You know, well, my title is commissioner, but what I found when I was coaching and playing and a vice president of so many teams that in this sport, you do so many other things. And that's what I found that we're doing now. It was a, uh, Kind of, kind of like a unique situation where Shep and JP and I have been friends for years, all the way back to the early days. And when the MASL was looking for a commissioner, uh, actually, I want to say Shep came up with the idea. Said, "Wouldn't it be unique that we all three went after the same job and then split it up?" And it was like, "Wow!" A bell kind of clicked, and we knew from talking with Joshua the the commissioner prior that there was so many things on his plate. You just can't get to everything. So we thought, Hey, let's go after if we get it, we can split it up. But like the Supreme court with nine or three, so we could always vote on different situations. And, and it's really been a kind of very unique business model that I think is really working. And we're excited now and what the future holds. Well, the, the uh, for those who are uninitiated, the MASL has been around for a number of years with uh, lots of different franchises, frankly, uh, spread across the entire U.S. and Mexico. I think a little bit of Canada, too, once in a while, right? Um, 
and I guess I what the the pointed question I would ask is, uh, is this the shall we say the MISL reincarnated? I mean, is this um, this is a bona fide professional indoor soccer league, and and in many respects is almost trying to. Um, and we've talked about this with with lots of different folks to kind of get the indoor game again, once again, at a higher level. I, I, maybe it's a folly to get to that MISL, you know, spark from back in the day. But I would argue that people like JP and Shep and yourself, who who have been part of that original MISL explosion and, and the things that came thereafter, um, it, it, there's an absolutely strong opportunity to indeed just do that, get it back to that sort of top, truly major level uh, once again? Well, incarnation is an interesting word and or continuation. You know, the the MASL is the continuation of the early MISL and it dwarfed into different names and it went different directions. Uh, But where it is right now, Shep, JP and I, because of the love of the game, and there were so many reasons why we do love it, because of the love of the game, we really felt that We've done so many things uh, separately that we could do things collectively and maybe take it back to where it used to be. And we would be excited about that because of our love for the game. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's really important to kind of understand sort of the beginnings of where this came about. Now, you know, we, we talk with people like Ed Tepper, for example, right at the founding, the beginnings, and even the, mm-hmm. the primordial ooze, I guess, of what the MISL was back in the day. Um, really actually got its roots, uh, 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 depending on how historical one is, uh, a long time prior in the 1920s even. But on a professional level, it's almost sort of this um, uh, almost afterthought and sort of uh, winter seasoning uh, for North American soccer league clubs. And that began a couple of exhibitions in Philadelphia with a Russian team and 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 then sparks sort of flew and then uh, a whole bunch of folks and then one in particular kind of coalesced around a, a, an actual league and forming rules almost on the fly. Um, how? Give us uh, some background on you and how you got into the professional indoor game, because from my crack research, your and memories, um, your entree into pro soccer really kind of started almost exclusively in indoor. Do I have that right? Yeah, it, it pretty much. You know, they... <laughs> The birth of the of the game, the sport, was pretty much, I think, nine months from the time Earl Foreman and Ned Tepper saw Moscow playing, you know, soccer inside a hockey rink in Philadelphia. And then they decided, hey, you know what? Wouldn't this be a fantastic sport? Uh, and the next thing you know, they went to their friends like Walt Chesowitz. And, and so Walt, at that time, was the Olympic coach. I was going to Oneonta State University. Um, I got asked to be in the Olympic player pool, went to Colorado Springs. So guys like Joe Maroney and Nagel Pesa and David Bursick, um, and the names go on and on and on. Um, we were all out there and we went back for a senior season and I was getting ready for the NASL draft and Washington, uh, had interested me and drafted me. And I was like, okay. My season just got over. The draft's in January. I get a call from Keith Von Aaron mid-November. Now, Keith. Oh, sorry. Uh, Keith, this is 1978-ish? This is 78. Yep, 78. 
And I get a call from Keith Van Aaron uh, at the athletic office in Oneonta State because Keith is across the street at Hartwood College. And he goes, hey, Keith, by the way, you just got drafted the number one into the MISL. And I literally said, Keith, what bar are you in? What, what are you talking about the MISL? And he goes, yeah, there's this indoor league. They had a draft. Now, Walt Chesowitz, who was a friend of Earl's and Ed, Ed and Earl went to Walt and said, hey, can you do the college draft of all your Olympic pool players? So that's how that first draft happened. And if you looked at it, you know, Taikyo and the list goes on and on, is that they took us from the player pool into indoor. So what happened, Tim, I then called the, the scout at Washington and said, hey, I have great news. Now, remember, at that time, I'm a broke college, college kid, right? So I said, I have great news. I'm going to play indoor. I got some money in my pocket. Pete Rose is my owner, and I'm going to be ready to play come, you know, after the draft. And they said, well, we, we don't want you to do that. I was like, what? And they go, no, we don't want you to play indoor. And I'm like, okay, well, I won't play indoor if you guarantee that I will get drafted. And then they said, we can't do that either. And then I called Cincinnati up and said, by the way, I'll, I'll come and play for the kids. Many of us went in indoor that year. Many of us were not allowed to play in the NASL. And then as teams started losing the summer of 79, I want to say that Ty Keogh and Doc Lawson were the first guys that got re-signed in outdoor. And that was the first year of the birth of indoor. That, and it's funny because, Tim, not funny, but exciting for me, because I used to go to the New York Cosmos as a fan, and I would watch Shep. Next thing you know, Nassau Coliseum, December 22nd, you know, 1978, Shep's on the other end of the field, and I'm on the other end of the field, and I'm playing against them, which was pretty wild. So it, it almost feels to me like, in some respects, this parallels to, to some level uh, some of the uh, – the iterations of let's call them challenger leagues in uh, in basketball with the ABA and the world hockey association, and even the world football league. Although this is a different version of the sport of soccer. I mean, the NASL, and I would even sort of put the ASL somewhat separately. It certainly was not as uh, well-funded and, and, and competitive uh, salary wise, I guess, for players. Um, it almost is like, it's almost like a, a, a new entity that in some respects players coming out uh, from college into the pros uh, almost had maybe as a, a new, uh, I don't know, chip in their, on their, uh, on their table that they could play or something in their back pocket that they can almost use as a, I won't call it a negotiating tactic, but um, another option besides just the one major quote unquote outdoor soccer league in this country. There was another road to travel. Exactly. I mean, it gave it a lot of ability of, of not only some of the top American players, but obviously MISL brought international players that were some of the best at the time around the world to play. But it also gave the ability for the young American kid who was graduating from college. Hey, you know what? Maybe I don't have to go outdoor. I can go indoor or I could go indoor outdoor because I played in the American Soccer League. Uh, so I played indoor and then I would go play in the American Soccer League. And, and there was guys like, you know, Pete Rose, like I said, was the owner uh, there was other other prominent like the Bartolo, um, you know, uh, the bus family came into the game. So all of a sudden the, the sport started to grow. It was perfect timing. NASL, they said, oh, my gosh, baby, we should go indoor. 
they were in an influx of, of trouble, maybe in the outdoor game. And next thing you know, the sport started growing and the crowd started getting bigger and more players were coming. And it was such an exciting time uh, to be part of it. And, and now, you know, 40 years later, here we are. And they got even indignant, the NASL did, because arguably it was a birth, if you will, on their, on their watch, right? Albeit, uh, uh, you know, uh, sock hawk tournaments and, and, and sort of toe dipping, I guess, until it took the, it took the MISL guys to kind of put a, put a bow around it and actually legitimately set it up as a league. And the NASL wanted its cut. It's especially when they saw how exciting it was and, and how some decent crowds were being drawn. Exactly. And there was there was talks at the table about blending it together, combining uh, however that would look. I don't know. But again, you know, sometimes in business, people don't see eye to eye. They think their thing is better than the other. So they they split. They didn't do anything. And then, you know, a year or so later, the NASL. And, and so the 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 indoor league then became kind of like the um, the life support for soccer in this country. If you look at who then came in the indoor, if you look at the referee program, Essie Bahamas, who just won an award uh, at the coaches convention, Joe Macknick, uh, Gino DiPolito, Brian Hall, head of CONCACAF. Uh, you, you could go down of who who in this country of referees then went indoor in order to prepare to go back outdoor. And you can talk about the players, too. I mean, you had Precky, and then he goes outdoor, becomes a two-time MVP. You got, uh, you know, Fernando Covillo, who then went on to star, you know, in Dallas and uh, was the technical director. Zorn Savick, assistant coach in sporting. You got Smetzer, uh, head coach in Seattle. Then you got uh, Chris Wright, who became the president of Minnesota uh, Timberwolves, and then all of a sudden, you know, in MLS, Lenny Kamarowski with the Cleveland Cavaliers. You had you had referees, you had coaches, you had players in front office staff that were born in indoor soccer and then went on to bigger things. And they all are interested in this new movement of how they can help us moving forward. All right. So take me back to 78, because I, we're assuming or the assumption is that that you wanted to be a professional soccer player as a career. Or was that sort of one of the things you were considering coming out of college? I mean, did you have a a, a course of study and a, and a real job pursuit, so to speak, or was soccer always on your mind as a, as the first and only pursuit? As a typical young athlete in this country, I played in majority of the sports other than basketball. I played hockey, baseball, football. My brother Tom brought home a soccer ball at the age of 13. And I, it captivated me because it was something that I could train on my own, but playing it within a team. So I started playing in junior high school. Uh, led my team. Next thing you know, a guy named Francisco Marcus calls me up, senior in high school. And he said, hey, I want you to play for Team USA at this international tournament at Hartwick College. And I'm like, wow, there's there's like Team USA and stuff. So next thing you know, I go to Hartwick College. I'm with guys like Tommy Mulroy and, and Tom Byers and, you know, a bunch of guys from New York and around the country. And next thing you know, I, I love Donianta. But I tried to get into Hartwick. I couldn't. Coach Garstam and Oneonta said, why don't you come and play? Uh, I then went and played there. And, and next thing you know, I'm doing really good. And, and Jimmy Lennox, who was the coach across at Hartway, said, hey, Keith, we were playing indoor soccer in our gym during the winter. Why don't you come over? So next thing you know, Jim was a friend of Walt. And next thing you know, I get invited to the player pool. And next thing you know, I get drafted. So within five, six years, I went from not knowing soccer, didn't even know there was professional leagues, 
And next thing you know, I'm playing professionally. I was like, hey, how cool is this? So I, I had no aspirations of playing professional soccer, really didn't know about it. One thing led to another, and it's all about relationships. And just met one person after another. And next thing you know, there I am in Nassau Coliseum playing against uh, Shep Messing and the New York Arrows. Yeah. And you, among many others, could be forgiven for not knowing that there was a professional soccer outdoor league or or even the beginnings of this indoor thing, whatever, whatever that was, because, you know, because it was the United States and the Pele yeah. thing didn't happen until 75. And even that was still considered a foreign sport and all that stuff. All right. Well, I got to ask you then. All right. So, so you're aware certainly of the outdoor game. You're clearly yeah. aware of the NASL with the Washington diplomats putting you on their draft board. Yeah. Um, but what do you know about this indoor thing and how does it become a real choice for you? Cause it doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of there there at this point. You're, you're coming well, out of college literally at the time that this thing is being formed. Yeah. What happened was that, you know, I went to the Cincinnati kids, uh, Pete Rose then signed with Philadelphia. So he takes off to Philadelphia. Now the kids are not going to be in Cincinnati. But the Pennsylvania Stoners call me of the American Soccer League. So, you know, we're with Matt Barr and, and Jeff Tipping and, you know, Florian Kemp who kicked for Houston and so Art Napolitano. So I go play, but I had promised my uh, parents at that time. I left Oneana halfway through my senior year. I was going for a BS in business economics. I played one summer uh, in the ASL. I went back to Oneonta, assistant coach, helped the coach. I came out in December and I'm like, God, I got to go back and indoor. I got to, got to make some money. And I love the game, but everybody just started. And they're like, well, even though I did really good, they're like, oh, you know what? We don't have room. Hartford Hellions were struggling. I went to an open trial with 150 other people, snuck to the front of the line, started, they played five minute games. They put numbers on your shirt. Like you're in a, uh, in a marathon uh, they give you five minutes, then they say, thank you very much, you're done. And I'm like, I got to get to the front of the line. I played the third game. They said, play five more minutes. I played five more minutes. Play another five. I played another five. I played my fourth five. And then I heard someone say, hey, can you come up to the bleachers? I came up. The coach said, I got my guy, went downtown Hartford, signed a contract that evening, got on an airplane the next day, flew to Wichita, started, and I was back in indoor. How can you describe those first early years in the MISL? I mean, the kids obviously were a one and done. Uh, the Hellions uh, were an interesting franchise, to say the least. Uh, I think they had, uh, I think they had, weren't they something before they became Hartford the year before? I no, I think I think they're always the they Hartford. They lasted, okay. they lasted three years. Three, right? But okay, so you, you've got a couple of those years under your belt. I mean, you, you kind of hinted at it before. Everybody's feeling out this game for the first time, right? It had to be both exciting and, and yeah, well, loving it. Okay, but but it's got to be a little bit frustrating too, especially maybe for the referees and the and the the laws of the game. As as our former guest Joe Magic would tell us that uh, sometimes there would be a little bit of creativity uh, applied as as situations presented themselves. But um, when did you kind of sort of how did it when did it become fun and curiosity, and then when did it click to sort of say, you know what, this is a this is a real sport. I think I'm on the I'm in the beginnings of something really significant here. Yeah, you know, when I went to Hartford, uh, Pittsburgh Spirit bought me from Hartford. I went to Pittsburgh, and I'm like, Pittsburgh? Well, what is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania? 
And that's when I really fell in love with the game. That franchise was great. It was owned by the Barlow family. John Kowalski uh, was my coach, who was my first coach in Cincinnati, and my coach with, uh, with Hartford. So there was a relationship there. Uh, I loved uh, Pittsburgh because it was a beer and a shot, sports town, uh, just really good people, really good owners. And this is where I met JP. JP worked in the front office, Chris Wright. Like, like I said, went on to Minnesota. He was our boss there. Just wonderful people. Uh, Lenny Kamarowski, who I said, went on to Cleveland. He was in the front office. It was just like a really great group of guys owned by a really good owner at the time. And the game started kind of like settling down where we knew the rules. We kind of fixed, started figuring out tactics and crowds started coming. I mean, the play at the Igloo in front of 10 or 11,000 people uh, and then traveling to other arenas like Madison Square Garden which I, I never thought growing up in New York that I'd play at the Garden. Uh, and then next thing you know, there we are playing at the Garden against uh, uh, Shep and, and the Arrows. Then it started to really click, wow, this thing is really moving fast. How uh, punishing were those early years in terms of, of um, travel, uh, in terms of, um, uh, I guess, um, uh, the, the manner in which the arenas were treating this new fledgling league. I, I you know, we talked to uh, Johnny Buss in a, in a previous episode that, you know, even at the forum, right. They were the third or sometimes even fourth, um, you know, fourth tier tenant, if you will, in some of these buildings. And, and I, I'm sure not every arena was, uh, you know, welcoming, especially when there were NBA and or NHL franchises to kind of tend to first, so to speak. You know, sometimes you felt like you were the third rung on the ladder. But again, we're young guys. We're getting money in our pocket. We're traveling the country. We're playing a game we love, even though it's indoor. Uh, the sport is taking off. You got the Lewicki brothers in the comments. They're bringing music. Next thing you know, we got music in the game. Next thing you know, we're running through lasers and, and fog being introduced. Uh, disco balls up in the ceiling. All of a sudden, the marketing started taking off in this game. Um, next thing you know, I, I became a player coach in another league. I went back with the bus family and you, and you mentioned John, I had three fantastic years coaching the lasers and, and it just kept growing and growing and getting bigger and bigger. And then, you know, somebody didn't like what this was, way it was going and somebody didn't like this thing. And it, then NASL, you know, outdoor soccer started coming back. And, uh, but at, in those mid eighties, it was just fantastic. It was it was great to play. It was huge crowds, great owners, fantastic players, and great people in the front office, and wonderful fans. What what uh, what cities and teams did you uh, enjoy visiting the most, and and sort of have your eyes wide open? And are there any uh, that um, kind of stood out as being? And talking MISL here first before we yep. move on to the uh, that you um, uh, found. Uh, surprising and or uh, ultimately lamentable. I, and I, I'll give you a little, I'll give you a hint on the second category. Uh, you're talking to perhaps one of the handful of uh, people who will admit that they were season ticket holders to the not even one season, New Jersey Rockets. So, oh, yeah. so, so go team, for it. Team, team, <laughs> a a team, team that team. should have done better on so many different fronts, but didn't. Yeah. Timo Leokowski was the head coach, right? Um, yeah. I mean, I, talk, I, about, well, talk about a great coach to kind of start a franchise with, but so many other things went out, went, went wrong with that, 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 that team. 
Yeah, I really like that building. I, I really loved going to Chicago Stadium and playing against this thing. I mean, the play against Granitza and, and Pato and those guys, you know, the second tier in the Chicago Stadium was straight up. You come you come onto the field behind one of the goals. I mean, that atmosphere, 15,000 people, that atmosphere was fantastic. But then you'd turn around and you go to Baltimore. And and Baltimore, I mean, 10,000 people sold out stadiums to make of it, Stankovic, you know, Pat Urkeli, Joey Fink. That was fantastic. But then you go all the way across the country to the Dome in, in Tacoma with 20,000 people, with, with Zungle and Preki and Jumping Joey Waters and Godfrey Ingram. That was fantastic. Then you head down to Dallas with Tattoo and Gordon Jago. I mean, think about what the buildings I just said. Uh, with just wonderful places, Minnesota with the, with the strikers up there. I mean, there was iconic stadiums uh, with wonderful crowds. And we thought, hey, we're riding this wild horse. We don't know where it's going, but it's, it's wonderful. Kemper Arena. I mean, I played in front of Kemper, 15,000 people, and, and, and you couldn't hear your teammate 15 feet in front of you. I mean, those those were the days where you would leave on a two-week road trip and you'd fly from, you know, wherever you were to Baltimore, go to Tacoma, go back to Cleveland, uh, head to Dallas, and then go back home. Just wonderful times. Yeah, but for every one of those teams, right, there was a San Francisco Fog, a Detroit Lightning. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. these are, you know, franchises uh, that, um, you know, I came and went, right? And uh, not unlike a lot of other fledgling sports entities, right, uh, maybe the right or the wrong owners, wrong situations, uh, maybe too many teams in a, in a market, like in the case perhaps of the Rockets, which, you know, from a media perspective and the New York Arrows, you know, championships in the, uh, in the shadows, um, uh, it, it had to be an interesting and sometimes uneven experience, right? Uh, despite yeah. some of those great highs that you just described. Yeah. You playing at the cow palace, you know, you, you mentioned the fog in San Francisco, even though you're in San Francisco, cool city, uh, not really big crowds, um, you know, there were some other buildings that, you know, especially in the middle part of indoor soccer, where now the name has changed and now it's the NPSL or the AISA, things have changed. But again, the, the foundation of everything was always the sport and the people that you met in it. Um, and that's really why Chef JP and I came back is because of the sport and the people that we know in it and, and maybe leave, leave a legacy of how do we not only take it back, but maybe even make it bigger. That, that to me was really challenging um, that, you know, when you're a player and a coach as an athlete, you get that competitiveness almost on a daily basis. And then sometimes when you leave it, you want it back. And this has really been competitive each and every day to try to get it moving forward. Um, Before we kind of get to sort of that next level, tell me about the, AISA, because I think a lot of indoor soccer fans were um, uh, unaware, especially if they weren't in these uh, somewhat smaller, uh, often Midwestern markets, that there was this uh, competitor. Some people would argue it it was a competitive league with a different model against the MISL. Some would have said it was more of a, uh, I won't call it minor league, but more of a feeder or some kind of partner league uh, eventually, or at least anticipated with the MISL, I mean, you you jumped in with both feet because when you went you went uh, from Pittsburgh to Louisville, you became not only a player but you were also the coach too, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow, what a strange time that was. 
like I said, I loved Pittsburgh and I was invited with Dave McKenzie and Ricky Schweitzer, who were teammates in Pittsburgh, to go to Louisville to do a summer camp for kids. Well, we went there. Peter Malak was the was the general manager of the soccer club. He treated us wonderful. The Kentucky Derby met wonderful people. The following year, we came back, and some of the parents of the kids said, "Could you do a coaching course?" So we did some coaching. Fell in love with it. Well, Steve Paxos and some other guys started the AISA. I was in my last year of my contract. I was by far not the best player in Pittsburgh, but I was one of the most popular players. And uh, the guys in, in Louisville said, hey, would you come and coach our team? And I said, hey, can I be a player coach? Because I want to play. And they said, sure, you can do whatever you want. So then Chris Wright and John Kowalski, they found out and they go, well, we want you to stay in Pittsburgh. And I said, well, I already gave my word in Louisville. So they upped my money and upped my money and upped my money. But I said, look at my words, my word. I hopped in a car, which was very difficult with the U-Haul after six or seven years in Pittsburgh, all my great friends got to Louisville, got into Mockingbird Valley a training center, Peter Malak, the GM. He sees me, he walks up to me, grabs me, gets me two beers and he goes, you want the bad news or the good news? I go, give me the good news. He goes, you got a beer. I go, what's the bad news? He goes, the ownership group fell through. I was like, what? I, am I going to call Chris and John back and go, I'm kidding. So my first two weeks in Louisville was to help Peter find owner in order for me to stay there. And next thing you know, we had a fantastic team. Um, On the championship, your third year there, right? Well, that Jimmy, Jimmy took over. We, we were in the finals the first year against Canton lost. We were in the finals the second year and lost. Got into the third year and halfway through my agent called and said, hey, by the way, the bus family just fired uh, Peter Wall. Why don't you come out for an interview? And I'm like, I'm only 27 years old. There's no way they're going to hire me. Wait, well, you, go, you, you were 27 me. when you became coach of the L.A. Lasers? Yeah, 27, 28. It was really Wow. Old. You must have yeah. been. The, were you the youngest coach in the league? At that point, well, I, I believe I was because Tim, when I walked into the hotel across from the forum, which I think is where the Rams play part of where the trace track was, I walk into the restaurant and this was during the MISL All Star game. So it was a break, right? I see Don Popovich, Dave Clements, and John Kowalski, my coach. And I walk in and they go, Hey, Keith, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I think I'm here for the same reason you guys are. And those guys are great coaches. I mean, Don's won four championships and quote, of course, John and Dave. And I sat next to Jim and uh, Jerry for the first half of the game and something happened. And I said, Oh, wow. And they said, what? And I took out a piece of paper and I wrote some stuff down. And then later, well, what? And wrote some stuff down. And then after the game in the forum club, Jerry and Jim come up to me and said, Hey, young man, it's great to see you. We'll be in touch with you. Well, you know what in touch with you means. Thanks for coming, but we won't call you. Well, when I got back to Louisville, they had already called and wants me to go coach LA. So now there's a battle between Louisville and the AISA and and me going to Los Angeles. But I ended up going to LA and I became the head coach there. What's this? LinkedIn jobs. Hey, these days it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for your small business. That's why LinkedIn jobs made it easier to find the people that you want to talk to faster and for free. 
Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. My goodness. Focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience and use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus the leading competitors. Yes, that's, it's no surprise, friends, that LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates that you want to talk to faster. Of course. Well, did you know that every week that nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Come on. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash good seats. That's linkedin.com slash good seats to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to our conversation. All right. So explain to me then the difference from going from Pittsburgh to the AISA, which ultimately became the second incarnation of the MPSL and the first yep. of its indoor version, and then going, shall we say, back up, right? Because going to LA, it's not just LA and the lasers and, uh, you know, and all the sort of uh, allure that comes with that market, but it's also the friggin' bus family, right? Which is the Lakers and the Kings and the Forum and and all that stuff, right? I mean, it's it, it's it almost feels to me like you're going from, you know, a, a good situation in Pittsburgh, a solid franchise, pr pretty well liked franchise in some yeah. cases, even yeah. outdrawing the Penguins uh, on a number of different occasions. Then yeah. you're going to Louisville, which is almost sort of a an earlier stage startup slash challenger to a league itself, the MISL that wasn't sort of fully established per se, only a handful of years old. And then you're going back up to now maybe arguably an even higher wattage situation in Los Angeles. H how are you mentally, uh, uh, <laughs> I guess, uh, handling all of these shifts and stuff? I mean, it's still indoor soccer, but they're, they're on certainly different stages along this way. One of the big reasons, Tim, why I went to Louisville is because my teammates in Pittsburgh and my other teams, those guys were making a lot of money, um, obviously training a couple times a day, playing games in the weekend. When, there's, when their career was over, they were going to go back to whatever country or whatever state they came from, and they were going to work four times the amount of hours to make four times less money. And, and I said to myself, remember, I said I went after a business economics degree. I, I needed to figure out the afterlife. So when I was asked to go to Louisville, I was like, wow, I can learn how to be a coach, which I had no aspiration, Tim, at all to be a coach. I could still play, which means I could start every game. And I could maybe learn the business side of the sport. That would be my afterlife. Well, somehow I had Zorn Savick, Bobby Joe, Brian Haynes. I had a wonderful team in Louisville. Uh, next thing you know, I get called to go to L.A., and I'm like, this isn't really not happening to me. My budget, player budget in Louisville was $78,000 for 20 players. Next thing you know, um, my office is in the forum. I have $1.25 million budget, not including uh, housing and this and that. Um, I'm, I'm on a plane with Dr. Buss and Jimmy and heading to a Laker game in Denver. Uh, they signed me to a half a season and a full season. 
Now, they never, I believe, won more than eight games in a season. I could be a little bit wrong with that, but I believe that half a season we won 18 games. Then Dr. Buss and Jimmy and I were out at a restaurant, and Jim said, Keith, can you have your agent call us? And I go, why? Well, to do next year's contract. And I go, you guys already got me under contract. And they go, well, how much do you want to make? And I'm like, what? And they go, how much do you want to make? And I'm like, oh, God, don't go too low. Don't go too high. Um, and the second, the first full season, we had the second best record in the MISL. Uh, to me, to be with the bus family, who were extremely so smart in business. And, and Rogi Fashon runs past my office and he's yelling, we got him, we got him. And I walk out and we go, who got who? And they got Kretzky. And then you got Magic Johnson and you got, you know, Cooper and you got Kareem. I mean, at 27, 28 years old, I'm in the middle of the sports mecca learning so much about business and the game. It was to go from Pittsburgh, which I love, to Louisville, which I needed, to go to L.A., which I really wanted. It, it just kind of worked out perfectly. Uh Describe L.A., though, uh, you know, that this was a franchise. I mean, I hinted at it before, and, and, and Johnny Buss sort of said it, too. I, this was, in some respects, the Lasers were not even the, the third-class citizen, in some cases even fourth, right? It, I mean, there was clearly synergies about, even before when that before that was sort of a thing that's sort of commonplace today. I mean, you know, uh, Paula Abdul and, and the Laker girls are becoming the Laser girls for a couple of games. Uh, okay, that's great. Uh, and the ability to share... Uh, ticket sales and kind of sort of incentivize uh, Laker and King fans to, you know, also take in games. But uh, there's also clearly uh, no um, uh, avoiding the fact that you were getting Monday night uh, dates and, and that kind of stuff. And, and LA is a far more complicated uh, entertainment uh, environment, right? So many different distractions and choices, uh, even back in the eighties when things were much more limited than they are today. I mean, um, I, I, you know, you, it had to be a bit frustrating sometimes to even with a, a, that uh, that great season of uh, of 87, 88, where you, I guess, helped uh, have the largest attendance uh, of the franchise history, 5,879 per game that season. That's got to be a little hard, though, when there's still another <laughs> 12, 13,000 seats to fill. Um, how does it feel being uh, a, a big deal in indoor soccer yet in L.A.? Um, I don't want to say ignored, but Lord knows they did try different, many different things to kind of get people to come to the games. And it never seemed to really take off from an attendance perspective. Well, LA is a very difficult market. And as you alluded to the fact, it was the Lakers, the Kings. We had professional volleyball. Jeannie had professional tennis. Uh, you had concerts. Uh, there was a lot of things going on. I was so focused on trying to bring a winning team to the bus family and to Southern California. Sometimes the crowds, yes. You know, there was a joke that I think the first 10 balls kicked into the stands. Uh, you got to keep and they would, they said they would find three or four after the game, right in the section. Um, but that didn't matter to me. My, my, my thing was I, I wanted to bring a winning team to the lasers. Uh, and, and I think we did pretty good at that. Um, you know, sometimes Tim, I'd get a player, I'd do it in appearance, and I'd be in Tarzana, which is, uh, you know, up in the valley, which from Redondo Beach, where I live, that could be an hour and a half to hour and 45. Two, two days later, I'm doing an appearance in Huntington Beach, which could be two hours to the south. So it is a mega metropolis, 
where, you know, where do you target market? And we were in Inglewood, which is not really at that time, one of the biggest soccer communities, the soccer communities were more down in the South or, or way up in the North. And that's, you know, the travel to the foreign would be difficult. I firmly believe though, that if the lasers stuck it out, that the lasers would have been a very successful franchise as far as, as the crowds were concerned. And I think that franchise would have been great. But by the late 80s, though, the MISL was getting a little, I want to say long in the tooth, but certainly was getting wobbly. Uh, and and having, you know, six, you know, somebody like Jerry Buss and his family believe in the league early on, you know, having seen those gigantic crowds in St. Louis and being wined and dined by uh, Messrs. Tepper and, uh, and Earl Foreman, right? That, that, that's the place to do it, right, is a sold-out checker dome. Uh, to convince them that it's a, it's it's a worthwhile thing. It clearly they they had had enough by near the by the end of your tenure, and it, arguably it wasn't from anything that that you could have done. I think it was just a matter of uh, and and the way I if I remember the conversation with Johnny, he kind of just sort of said we can't we don't see the league's vision going forward here. Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, I remember Jerry calling me in the, in his office. And he told me, you know, coach, I love this game of indoor. He goes, I just don't like the direction of the league office and, and their and their plans moving forward. I think John would tell you, I think Jim, Jeannie, uh, obviously Jerry would all tell you they love the game of indoor. They just didn't think that the direction and the blueprint was what they needed. So Jerry said to me, hey, by the way, I have a boxing card twice a month, Mike Garrett, former Heisman Trophy winner. He's the boss over there. Uh, do you and Don Ebert want to become assistant marketing directors for foreign boxing? And I'm like, okay, well, if you're not going to do indoor soccer, I got to make a living and I got to learn something else. So I started doing that. And then six months into the boxing world, uh, Atlanta reached out to me. Uh, they said, hey, we'd love for you to coach. I went to Jim and, and Jerry and said, hey, what do you think? And they said, coach, we're always behind you. Good luck to you. If you need to come back, come back. So again, they, they loved the indoor game. They just didn't feel that the blueprint was the right way to go. Now, you remember, uh, Jerry and, and them started Prime Ticket. So they, they were doing like, you know, sports in Southern California. They changed the name of the Forum Club. I mean, there was a lot of moving parts at that time. Uh, and indoor soccer maybe wasn't at the top of the ladder. Did... Um... Did you and Johnny ever discuss uh, the Continental Indoor Soccer League idea? I um, I remember vividly in our conversation that, indeed, uh, a lot of them did like the sport. And uh, I think it was sort of discussed, geez, what if we did it during the summer? Uh, it might be a better business model, get some uh, co-ownership or overlapping ownership with uh, NBA or NHL teams and stuff. Did or were you kind of essentially already out the door back into what now was the NPSL, I think, with the Atlanta attack? No, yeah, no, at, the, at, at that time, um, John and Ron Weinstein, who was the general manager president, they brought in Peter Wall. And, and Peter, wonderful coach, obviously great player back in England. Um, when I came, Jim took over for John. So I didn't have much contact with John. I had more contact with Ron, uh, who was the GM. Jim, another another former guest of ours, and and I'm, I'm wondering if if Ronnie was in the in the mix for that conversation, or maybe they just didn't get to you in time before you left. No, Ron, Ron, Ron was in the mix because really it was Ron's brainchild that he went to Jerry 
after they left the MISL. And he pitched it to Jerry. Hey, by the way, buildings during the summer are more than empty. The, the, the cost is lower. Uh, you don't have football. You don't have hockey. You know, what you got is baseball. Uh, that was really Ron's brainchild. You know, I, I remember having conversations with Ron and, and him going, hey, by the way. Uh, and, and obviously, John was in that in that mix. So but, but at that time, I was already across the street at the prime ticket office, which was the boxing office. And Don and I and Mike were doing boxing and and they were doing blueprints to see what the CISL would be. But then all of a sudden I got a call from Atlanta and uh, a guy named Graham Tut said, hey, why don't you come down here for an interview? And I went there and next thing I was back in indoor. So another another uh, uh, former guest of ours, Graham Buster Tut, um, which is a fascinating story in and of itself. A lot of overcoming of obstacles and stuff. Uh, describe to me this Atlanta situation because that only, uh, I think, only lasted a season in Atlanta, or was it two? No, we had we had two seasons. You know, um, and it was still the AISA, but only for one of those seasons, right? So I, I guess the question in there is: number one, Atlanta had had a, cu- a couple of bites of the soccer cherry for sure and the outdoor level and and but also the indoor chiefs who had done actually better than the outdoor version in the early part of the 80s so i think some of that kind of uh uh bled over to the to the attack um but i'm also curious about sort of this transitional period from this i guess it was the last year of the aisa to the uh transformation into the rebranding and i guess different new or business business model the npsl at that time so a lot of times out there, but go for it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, everything starts at the top. And I know that's an old cliche, but I think that's really important in business is if you have the right owner, it makes it so much easier for the coach or the president. Ron Twilliger was the owner. He was CEO and managing general partner of Trammell Crow, uh, one of the largest real estate companies in the country. A great guy. Uh, loved the game, loved to, to treat his team correctly. Graham Tuck was the GM, and he we we hit it off. I mean, he hits it off with everybody. Um, the general manager was a good guy. So I, I brought Zorn Savick, Peter Hattrip. Uh, I was at a barbecue, and someone said, hey, coach, you got to draft this kid named Brian Haynes, a Trinidad Tobago kid out of uh, Erskine College. I drafted him, and Haynes, he became all-star, all rookie major league soccer we just had a really really good team and a really nice building in a really cool city and it was wonderful because again I was in indoor soccer pretty much family orientated I then went into the boxing world which is a little bit different then I went back to what I loved I actually came out of retirement Um, one of my my second child passed away at six weeks old and I needed that outlet. So I asked, hey, could I go back to playing and coaching? So I actually played and coached for a season. Um, but it was great. And and then what happened, Tim, a year and a half later, uh, the housing, real estate, you know, bomb came. Uh, and, and Ron needed to move the team. And we took the Atlanta attack and it became the Kansas City attack. So then there I was on the road again. And then something very interesting comes. So you were in Kansas City for only a short period of time, though, right? For one more season, was it? Seven months. Seven months. Okay. But but then something, I guess, for lack of a better word, transformative happened, right? Um, 
Now, by this time, the, the, the NPSL was the new name for the formerly known AISA. Correct. Um, and it was still sort of the, I guess, looked upon as sort of the, uh, I, I want to call it minor league, but sort of a still challenger to this MISL, which itself had gone a bit sideways, this major soccer league rebranding. Uh, there was, I think, a lot of talk about trying to harmonize indoor and outdoor schedules so that uh, a team or players at least could, to your earlier hinting, um, play both in somewhat of a harmonized uh, contractual way uh, that would be um, uh, enabled uh, both owners and players to kind of taste uh, excitement both indoors and outdoors and make a full year business out of it. Um, but tell us about this little thing called the Milwaukee wave, which still exists to this day, because in many respects, um, I would wonder that the MSL model would have been attractive to you too. But um, tell me how Milwaukee comes about. And more importantly, how does it wind up becoming your, uh, your mainstay for, God, it was almost a dozen years or so. No. 24 years, actually. Sorry, uh, twice that. I apologize. Okay, yeah, that's okay. Uh, I went to Kansas City with the attack for seven months because my second son passed away. We had special doctors. My wife was pregnant again. Um, at that time, when I was in Atlanta before I went to Kansas City, I think it was the 1990 World Cup, Italy. Am I, is that right? 90? Yes, that's correct. 90? Three and okay, out. 90. Yeah, Three so I worked, right. I, I worked for TNT. For that World Cup with Ernie Johnson and, and uh, Craig Sager and, and all those guys, um, I, I, I fell in love with television. Again, going back to my business thing, my marketing with Forum Boxing, it was like another thing that I got really excited about. Well, I went to Kansas City. I was there seven months by myself. I was flying back and forth. Once we lost in the playoffs, I was like, I'm done. I'm like, I'm going to try to go work back at TNT, whichever way I can, I'm done with it. So I moved back to Atlanta. Uh, I'm sorry, you're, done, you're saying you're done with the soccer, soccer business. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Now you remember I went to LA and then. Yeah. And I, yeah because it's not then, a stable business for sure. Still kind of is. Yeah, I mean, for coach for sure, but, but I could, yeah, I, it takes a special breed. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, it, it takes a okay. special breed. And we've talked about this for, for, for many, many different conversations, right? Um, it, it's, you gotta, you have to have this belief. Right. Uh, because the business, at least certainly at that point, was very, very hard to kind of sort of rely upon for anything, especially okay. life in general. Right. Like paying the bills and and dealing with health insurance and, and all the other things that come along in life. Sadly, the yeah, things yeah. that you had to encounter. Yeah. And, and remember, I, I keep saying my business mind, I'm constantly trying to learn. Right. I'm trying to trying to make sure that I have different spokes in this wheel so that if I'm out of soccer, that I can continue to do something. So I, I, I said, I'm done. I'm going to go back to Atlanta. I live in the South. I love it down there. Uh, my last couple games in Kansas City, we played against Milwaukee Wave. And one of the owners, Ron Creighton, he came up to me on the field and he said, you know, Keith, one day you're going to coach for me. And I'm like, I think you're tampering. Just joking. And sure enough, he called me up and he said, Keith, we'd love for you to come up to Milwaukee. And I'm like, you know, Ron, I went to Kansas City for a year. I was in Atlanta for two years. And then I was in L.A. for three years. I, I I, don't know. He said, why don't you just come up and talk with us? So I flew up and talked to a guy named Jim Peters and Ron Creighton, the two owners. And they talked me into signing, I think, a three-year deal at the beginning. 
Uh, I moved my family up. Three years turned into another five-year contract. Before my five-year contract, they signed me to another five-year contract. Before that one, they signed me to another five-year contract. And I ended up coaching the Milwaukee way for a wonderful uh, 24 years of my life. Okay. How does that happen given the, the, the background that you just described of a year here and playing and coaching there and MISL this and then AISA that? And, and you're, you're, you're basically we're beyond the point of sticking around in this business. And here then now you find your longest lasting gig, so to speak. Um, how does that situation happen? I, 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 it almost feels to me like the only one, the only similar situation I could even think of is the ownership group that's been around or had, had been for quite some time uh, with Baltimore over the many years in their second and third incarnations at Hale. Um, but I, I, did you just stumble into a situation that was so rare and, um, uh, and, uh, and lucrative or, um, I, describe the Milwaukee situation because it's not common or hadn't been common, certainly by that no. point. Again, it goes back to the top. Ron Creighton and Jim Peters were wonderful owners. The, you know, they were owners that said, just like Jerry Buss was, just like uh, all the other owners I had up into that time. Was, Look, I'm hiring you as a coach and, and GM. They didn't micromanage. They, they, they said, look it, you have a talent. We're going to let you do what you got to do. Now, if you need to lean on us, lean on us. Um, and, and I did that. And, and they were also astute, uh, business people. Uh, Jim was in the world of, of building leaders and, and Ron was an entrepreneur in a lot of different ways, which kind of fit my mindset. Right. Uh, and they let me do what I needed to do. Uh, it's not carte blanche, but if you hire somebody, especially in sports, hire them and let them do what they do well. And, and they were fantastic at it. And then, you know, you alluded to the fact sometimes about minor league. If you ask any of the, my players who played for our teams, I always said that underneath the word professional in a dictionary doesn't say you have to make a million. I, I would think that all the players would say that we tried to run whatever team we had as professional as we possibly could. And part of the reason was, is that when you came to our city, our arena and played against our team, we wanted players to say, oh, my God, I got to come to this franchise and play. So the mindset between that ownership and, and where I wanted to go to. And now remember the journey. I became a player coach and a GM. I learned how to do per diem. I, I learned how to do airline tickets. I, I learned how to do all those different things. So when I came to Milwaukee, it came great. And then there was the summer camp issue. And we grew the summer camp from a $50,000 uh, entity to almost a million-dollar entity. So the business side, and then the, the crowds came. And then at the same time, Tim, my coach, John Kowalski, got me in to be the head coach of the national team. So 20 out of the 24 years, I was the head coach of the national team, futsal, and I was traveling the world, and I was learning more. And I was bringing some methodology back and some players from Brazil. And then we started winning championships. And the big thing that we all talk about is with the Milwaukee Wave, we built a culture similar to maybe like New England Patriots. You put on that jersey uh, and what other franchise you have, you put on a jersey and that makes you just be better. And we built a culture. We had a system. 
We had fantastic fans. It was just a wonderful place uh, to coach and player. And, and we had some fantastic players here. And, and it's fascinating to me because this is a franchise that even before you arrived and, uh, and for the bulk of it, I mean, this, this is a team that started in the fledgling AISA in 1984-85, right? And it, it went through, I don't know, five different leagues. I mean, the, the, the MPSL and then the second incarnation of the MISL, which is part of a rebranding. There was a one-year thing called the XSL, if people remember Tony yeah. Viola and the New Jersey Ironmen and, and that yeah. sort of thing for one season. And then the MISL sort of version three. And, and now the major arena soccer league and the wave has been there ever since this is a franchise yeah i mean that that speaks to something beyond just hey let's have a team in a league and maybe win a few championships i mean there's something much more if for management fans uh, the experience whatever to kind of keep this game going regardless of what the league is uh at that, that point if you're a part of the milwaukee wave not only in the city of milwaukee but really the entire state Wherever you go, and still to this day, I just just today at a grocery store, someone came up to me. Um, the Milwaukee Wave are are really really big uh, in Milwaukee, in Wisconsin, and and people look at it. I mean, obviously the Packers, the Bucks, and the Brewers, uh, even the Milwaukee Admirals are very big here. Marquette basketball, but the people put the wave right up there. I mean, they've been here um, between Baltimore Blast, which is uh, this weekend going to celebrate their 40th year. You got the Milwaukee Wave, which is the longest running professional soccer franchise in North America. Um, they have a great culture. Um, they have a great backing. And, and and it was, you know, I said to someone the other day, it, it was an, uh, a privilege uh, to coach them for so many years. And it wasn't my right. It was a really true honor to to be here as long as I was. Well, look, um, I think there's a reason why they also kept you around. I mean, you won six championships. You you went to the final game uh, four times to coming just short. I mean, you know, for 21 seasons or so, I mean, ha- more than half of those or about half of those, you were walking away with some major hardware, right? And, uh, you know, plus also to your point, right, you, you're, you're, it's bigger than that because you're also part of I guess what the business is of the wave, which is not just about selling tickets for the arena, but all the other things that come along with that, like licensing and the soccer camps and all that kind of stuff. Right. So um, it, to me, that's, it's, uh, it feels sadly, it's, it's more of an exception than it has been the rule uh, in the realm of pro pro soccer, but, but perhaps we're maybe in a different era. We're sort of, sort of entering in a new one where um I know I think uh, money, investment, private equity, um, hell, tokens and, and crypto. Who knows? Uh, it just seems that uh, sports is in a gigantic boomlet right now. Um, and I think indoor soccer it has its right place in it. Um, uh, anew, perhaps. Yeah. You know, in 1978, 79, I know my mom and dad said, oh, my God, son, this is the perfect time for you to be in the sport. Soccer is booming in this country. But if you really look at now, the, the cell phone. Uh, social media, TikTok, Twitch, YouTube. Maybe this is the perfect time for indoor soccer to make its next big leap because maybe the the the, the technology, how our, our our young generation is now, and everything is short and quick. Maybe indoor soccer is now the perfect time. 
technology may be caught up to indoor soccer and together we're going to take it to the next level. You got the world cup coming to guitar. You got the world cup coming to North American four years later. Uh, there's going to be big announcements here. We're at the coaches convention to, to, to get back into the conversation. We're going to have a player combine, a college draft. Um, I maybe think this is the perfect time. And I, th- this journey with Shep and JP, uh, has been so great the last seven months. A lot of hard work, uh, some uphills and some downhills, but hopefully we'll get there. All right. So, so uh, before we sort of wrap up, get, describe to me then how 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 a major arena soccer league um, competes, uh, both with uh, just the blizzard of other choices uh, for sports and, and entertainment, frankly, but also now in a soccer environment that, you know, for better or for worse, is um, – and maybe it's an embarrassment of riches now. Some would say even oversaturated or certainly saturated uh, in terms of television coverage, international uh, games, uh, just, you know, uh, at, at one's fingertips uh, and, and, a, and an outdoor league now that uh, at least from a facility perspective and, um, you know, a, a staying power perspective is, has got some, some solid, uh, solid roots to it. Um, I, I know, you know, soccer sno- uh, snobs are going to sort of, you know, uh, uh, throw bricks at, uh, you know, the quality of play and the, the all that kind of stuff. I, I don't that's not the place for this, this conversation, but it's a different outdoor soccer world. Let's put it that way. Right. And mm-hmm. and we were talking about some of your early years in the indoor game. To your point earlier, during the 80s, indoor literally saved this sport. Right. Because it was the only yeah. professional game in town of any, you know, because the NASL collapsed. Right. It was dark days. Um, I don't think the days are as dark now, and I would argue your competition is even more more challenging. But there's no denying that the product of indoor soccer, the skill, the speed, uh, the excitement, um, is certainly something that that um, still holds up today. And um, I, I guess I'm just curious as to how how you grow this to sort of stand out and and get to, shall we say, that next level, or is it really a world of knowing thy niche and really deepening it and um and and not trying to be another nba but being the best masl you can be yeah i think if you know shep jp and i uh we we want it bigger than just a niche sport are we going to be as big as the big five now because some people put major league soccer up there uh we got a long way to go those sports have been around for 100 years um you know, we've been saying throughout the, this conversation, everything starts with ownership, ownership with money. The, the, the better owners that we get in the future with the ones that we already have and they're committed to to put wind in their sails and maybe lose a little bit money as they then produce money moving forward. I think that's key. I think getting sponsorships, I think getting new expansion uh, in and getting new blood and expansion meaning Owners with deep pockets that have a deep vision to go a long way. I think that's going to really help the cause. And I, and I think we're going to get there. I, I really feel that um, they're out there. I mean, if you looked at the USL grew rapidly from 500,000 to maybe $10 million of franchise, there's a lot of wealthy people around here. Here's another thing. I travel the country extensively. Uh, with U.S. Youth Futsal, right? I, I'm still involved in the futsal game. There are wonderful players, young players in this country that just need the opportunity to be seen, kind of like how I was 
back in Oneonta State. You're going to continue to see the play in this league continue to get better with the combine, with with the college draft, with us being back into the conversation that, yeah, there is outdoor soccer. Yeah, there is futsal. Yeah, there is beach soccer. But there's also indoor soccer. And here's another avenue for you to go, both on the ownership, the sponsorship, the coaching, the player, and the front office. We're here, and we're going to take it to the next level. All right, last question. Do you do you see um, – so on the ownership side, I, I, I'm assuming that that also – uh, possibly means maybe trying to convince an NBA owner or an NHL owner or some other indoor arena, you know, uh, uh, you know, entity or so to kind of also kind of jump in. I think the Arena Football League was kind of in that same sort of boat too. Um, but I also wonder too if outdoor soccer, some aspect of it, maybe not Major League Soccer because it's so sort of foregone, so to speak. But 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 maybe USL, maybe. Um, uh, NISA, maybe some other relationship with the outdoor game that in some respects could harmonize with the indoor game and, and itself give some outdoor indoor year long kind of co-marketing push. I, I'm throwing ideas out there, but it feels to me like there are, there are a number of different avenues to explore with this. You know, part of the conversation is that indoor soccer lost the fact that indoor soccer could be a great developer for players for outdoor as well as referees. Uh, you know, when, when I was coaching indoor soccer, uh, you know, people would say the boards, you know, it's a safety net. But if, if you talk to my players, if someone passed the ball to a teammate and missed them, I might blow the whistle and they'd say, why are you blowing the whistle? I got the ball back. Well, in outdoor, it would have been a throw in and an indoor and futsal would have been a kick in. So you can use the boards tactically. You know, a lot of the guys that are coaching Major League Soccer or Mike Noonan, who just won a national championship at Clemson, who played for me in Louisville, or, or Johnny Torres, who coaches Creighton University, who is a, high, a Herman Trophy winner twice. They all say indoor soccer teaches a lot of great things like individual defense and how to move the ball forwards and counter uh, counterattack and restarts. Indoor soccer just lost that conversation. That's what we're trying to get back to it. And, and I think the more we talk about it, like great shows like yours uh, and the things that JP are doing at the media level, I think we're going to get back into the conversation and I'm going to think you're going to see great things at the ownership level. People become owners for a lot of different reasons, maybe because of their kids, maybe they have aspirations to be a politician. Maybe they're like the business model, but owners like to be together with big other owners to do other kind of business. As soon as you get one or two that come into this league, then I think that will be the catapult to push us forward. Yeah, and two, I th- I th- think you've got uh, some um, nostalgic connections too that can be mined, um, and I think genuinely too, right? So, a San Diego Soccer's an iconic franchise, Whoa. especially indoors, from all these years dating back to the NASL indoor and MISL days. Uh, the Kansas City Comets are essentially. Back to Tacoma Stars or a brand, the Baltimore Blast essentially never left. Plus, other franchises that have been around for so long, even having right or or Milwaukee Wave from from the old AISA days. So, in 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 many respects, you you have that card to play too. Is is this is not a Johnny Come Lately kind of situation? Indoor soccer has been around for many many years. It saved the sport. Hello. Uh, uh, National Soccer Hall of Fame. Where is your MISL uh, wing? I don't see it yet. Um, but you know, I digress. But uh, but my point is that 
there's actually a history there, right? It's not like yep. it's not like creating something brand new, like a new cricket league per se, or or some new sport like world chase tag or whatever. I mean, or, or pickleball. I mean, there, there are, this is or actually pillow, or pillow fighting. Yeah. Whatever. I mean, the, the, I mean, it, American cornhole league. I mean, in this, in this day and age, we're watching people throw ba- bean bags into, uh, into wooden holes, uh, you know, the 30 yards away. It's, it's insane. But to say, to think that, that indoor soccer can't um, not only continue, but build upon its actual real history. I mean, there's real history there that can be tapped into that um, is not just a, hey, come look at me, I'm brand new kind of thing. Um, I, I don't know. It seems to me like you're on the precipice of something uh, generationally uh, next gen here uh, with this sport. And I, I hope that is the case. And there's no question that people like like Shep and JP and our, our pal Warner Roth that we had last uh, couple of weeks, weeks back, um, you know, these are people with long histories in the game and yourself, of course. Um, I can't think of a, of a better group of people that um, understand where this game came from and hopefully have a good vision to lead it to where it can go to the next level uh, in the future. Yeah. And well said, you know, people don't like change and, and, and it, it has a great history, but I think it really, really has a bright future. I think there's so many wonderful young players that are playing now I, I think there's going to be a great group of young players that come, you know, hopefully we'll get into Canada. We're already in Mexico. There's talk of people around because of the four guys who you just mentioned, there's now people around the world, coaches who want to come players who want to come and money that wants to come. So I think indoor soccer has done a very good job of it in their cities. Now our job is to explode it, but not only in North America, but have people around the world know about it. All right. Some uh, definite modesty there uh, from Keith. Uh, a reminder that uh, the Milwaukee Wave career of his, which spanned 1992 when they were in the uh, NPSL, uh, all the way through 2014, uh, when they had uh, uh, just finished up, I think, the last ever season of the third incarnation of the MISL. Um, Keith uh, essentially uh, uh, was coach and more for uh, 10 championship uh, game seasons, six of which uh, ended up in uh, outright championships for uh, games they lost that championship game or series, but six titles. Uh, what do they call it? They call it um, the title wave. That was sort of the uh, the uh, the logic and the uh, the the slogan of the Milwaukee Wave for all those years that Keith was uh, coach there and, uh, and well revered and remembered in the Milwaukee area uh, ever since uh, leaving uh, in 2014 and now uh, in some respects uh, coming back as the uh, relatively newly minted commissioner of the major arena soccer league in which the Milwaukee Wave and a bunch of other teams uh, currently reside and are domiciled. That uh, gray, cool carpet uh, and uh, the um, uh, the ball bouncing around uh, up there in Milwaukee. Uh, our thanks to Keith. You can follow Keith in all of his uh, travails 
uh, at K Tozer USA Futsal on Twitter. So that's uh, the letter K Tozer T O Z E R USA Futsal F U T S A L. That's all one little word there on Twitter. You can also follow uh, his uh, uh, M A S L Arena Soccer um, exploits at M A S L Arena. All one word M A S L Arena. Um, our thanks again to our pal JP Delacamera for connecting us to Keith. Uh, JP, of course, being the uh, chief media guy and and uh, uh, video and PR and corp comms and uh, uh, content distribution uh, guru at uh, the MASL. Uh, and uh, check out MASL Soccer where you can at the website. Um, that's uh, MASLsoccer.com. And... Um, Let's see what else. Uh, we have lots of great stuff for you to explore from uh, our previous doings and ongoing doings at goodseatstillavailable.com. Check out our websites where all of our episodes reside. Uh, and uh, you can check out all of our fun stuff, all of our links, all of our books and things that uh, you can uh, uh, purchase and or uh, continue to learn more about. And uh, we'll put all of our episodes uh, forthcoming up there as well. But the best way to get uh, every single stinking episode of this silly little show is to subscribe or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on every platform known to, to woman or man. Uh, so it's just uh, it shouldn't be too hard to get us uh, in your respective feeds. But somehow, if you forget us or you want to introduce your pals uh, friends, uh, loved ones to the show, or just get them to sample it. The website, probably the best, easiest way to do so, uh, to hopefully convince them to uh, subscribe and uh, maybe even rate and review us. Uh, again, check us out at uh, um, goodseatsstillavailable.com, uh, where, of course, you can also uh, subscribe to our weekly email newsletter. Uh, you will also find convenient links to our social media feeds. Uh, on Facebook, there's a page devoted to us. You'll find us on uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available, and you will also find us at Twitter or on Twitter at Good Seats Still. That's the handle there. Uh, send us some email if you'd like. Uh, we are at hello at Good Seats Still Available dot com. Always happy to get your uh, your inquiries and your uh, uh, your, uh, your suggestions and uh, your uh, your likings and dislikings. And thank you, of course, to our pal Jerry Payne, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Thank you, sir, for your work this week. As always. All right. We appreciate your listening. Thanks so much. More fun and frivolity coming your way next week. Until then, thank you and goodbye, everybody. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.